It is such a pleasure to feature one of my esteemed professors on the Empowerment Zone, Dr. Emilio Zamora. Dr. Zamora was one of my professors during my first year of graduate school at the University of Houston. Dr. Zamora is now a professor of history and the Clad Rob Littlefield Chair in Texas History at our alma mater, the University of Texas. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Dr. Zamora has been extremely influential in my educational and professional development as a scholar and activist, where my primary focus is on the African-American and Mexican-American communities' efforts to create social change. In part one of our conversation, Dr. Zamora explores how his life growing up in the small town of La Feria in South Texas his undergraduate education, and his research on Mexican-American activists, Alonso Perales y Jose de la Luz Science, has shaped his consciousness as a scholar and activist. Enjoy our conversation and see the show notes for more information about Dr. Zamora. As always, make sure you subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Your support will make sure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Dr. Emilio Zamora, it's so good to have you here. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone. Thank you so much, Ramona. I'm glad to be here and to join your listeners and viewers. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about having you. One reason is because you're one of my former professors at the University of Houston, and now you're at my alma mater, the, the University of Texas in the history department. And uh, you just taught me so much uh, during my first year of graduate school. I'm forever grateful to you um, as an African-American studying both African-American history and Mexican-American history, I always felt embraced by you as a student and never felt like an outsider to Mexican-American mm -hmm. studies. So I must express my gratitude to you. Well, you know, my admiration for you began when I first met you. You always stood out as a bright, dedicated, socially conscious young woman. And uh, I appreciated that because that's one of the things that I value among young people, that kind of awareness that you exhibited and you continue to exhibit with your entrepreneurial and um, scholarly interests. So uh, I'm so glad to know you and thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. And we're both uh, natives of Texas mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, like myself, that growing up in Texas really shaped your identity and shaped your interest in studying Mexican slash Mexican-American studies. And so could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you decided uh, to study ethnic studies? Well, I have to start with my parents. Uh, like all good parents, they guided me well and made clear what 
kinds of values were to define me, hard work, uh, respect for the rights of others, um, a, a sense of social responsibility. I, I was born and grew up within a uh, working class Mexican family on the border. Uh, my family of both sides, my paternal and maternal sides, uh, date their ancestry back to the 1700s on the border. And uh, the, the first thing that I think is important for me to say is acknowledge the, my parents, particularly my grandfather, who not only uh, guided me in defining who I was with values, but also told me a lot of stories that helped me understand somewhat at a young age. Of course, I didn't have the words for it, that there was social inequality. More importantly, the social inequality was racial. Um, that is, society was defined in terms of Mexicans and white people. And the lines separating us were very clear and sharp and deep. So that's, that's the thing that um, I, I remember my grandfather would always talk to me about the Gran Despojo, the great robbery of 1848 when the US uh, directed a, a war of aggression on Mexico and resulted in forcing Mexico to give up more than one half of its territory to the North, which became the American Southwest. So he would tell me those things. But the other thing that, I, that stands out in my memory is um, driving across the border with, to visit my paternal grandparents. And the, the trip was no longer than one mile in things because we were that close to each other, but separated by the border. And I remember uh, distinctly seeing tractors in the farms of South Texas, farms owned by whites, worked by Mexicans. And then crossing the border and seeing that people on the Mexican side weren't using tractors, they were using mules to pull the, 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 the various um, technology that, uh, that we're using back. In other words, I was able to notice a difference not only between whites and Mexicans and working class people and upwardly mobile people, but I was able to see the difference across the border. And so that made a, a great impression on me. Again, I didn't have the words to explain it. That I learned during another important phase in my life and that involved my college days in, in a small uh, four-year institution, the only four-year institution of higher education in South Texas, which was about a hundred miles of, uh, north of the border. Uh, the place is called Texas A&I University. And I was involved in the student movement there. You know, young people, when they enter universities, they invariably ask themselves, who am I? Now that I'm separated from the family, what decisions am I going to make to uh, continue with the values taught by my family and adding new ones? Th this whole process of um, developing a, a consciousness is very important to young people. For us as young people, that is for us as Mexicans, and I think it happened also with young African-Americans. We were asking the same questions, who am I? But we were asking those questions with a very clear understanding that the context within which we were asking those questions was a highly racialized, uh, unequal society. So we asked ourselves basically, who are we as Mexicans? What responsibility do we have to our communities as this new intellectual class? 
So that's how we developed our student movement. We took over the student government. We helped the local public school students organize walkouts and protests of discrimination in the schools. We, we did all kind of, we were connected with the farm workers movement. We provided support and, and in the process we talked. We shared observations and guided each other as young people uh, towards uh, uh, a, a consciousness that incorporated all that we understood to be an, a racially unequal society in South Texas. <clears throat> That's how I entered graduate school at UT Austin in 1971 with that kind of uh, pretty well-formed sense of who I was as a Mexican and my responsibilities to not only my community of Mexicans, but also other working class communities throughout the country. And so I decided to study history at UT Austin primarily because I wanted to use um, the skills that I would uh, develop to teach, to write, to publish, uh, to, to support the cause for equal rights. And so I decided to write on Mexican American history a field of study in American history that had not been developed. Some people had written materials, but we had not systematically built an academic program in colleges and universities across the country focusing on the Mexican community. That was a major fight. As graduate students, we risked a lot, as many other students did throughout the country, African-Americans and women. We initiated these new fields of study that's not to say that other people had not written before, had not made the same arguments for including us into the larger story. But this was like a new phase with larger numbers of us <laughs> that were now basically forcing our way into the graduate programs. And so I was involved in developing, establishing and developing the Center for Mexican-American Studies, which included a, an academic program in which I participated both as a graduate student, but also as a, an instructor. So it was an amazing uh, responsibility that, that we assumed as young people. We were in our early 20s, you know, studying our history, uh, fighting for the rights to, to teach those courses and then teaching them and doing right by the students who wanted to learn. So um, I grew intellectually very rapidly. Um, I grew uh, with a sense of social responsibility. That I think shows in my work. I, I've written quite a bit on Mexican-American history. And I've written about the conditions under which Mexicans have lived throughout the 19th and 20th century. But more importantly, I believe, I've also written about what Mexicans thought and said about those conditions under which they lived and worked. That is, they, Mexicans shouldn't be surprising, like other groups around the country, came together and built social movements uh, to advance their interests, which is just another way of saying that they came together to express a common shared identity as uh, members of the American working class, uh, fighting uh, for social justice, which involved uh, challenging the not only discrimination against their people, but against the whole edifice of race, which is very important 
I, I, as you may have noticed here and there, I make connection to other communities like African-American communities. Um, I think that uh, different communities independent of each other often come to the same conclusion. That is that they're not the only ones facing the, the problems associated with a racial edifice. Um, that their experiences as a minority group may be distinct from others, but at the same time, they're part of the larger issue in American society in which people are set apart and below with the use of racial ideas. And so I ended up um, now at this point in my life, um, it's no accident that I focused on two major political leaders who are moderates. I've always been drawn to the more radical leftist thinking Mexicans in the social movements of the 19th and 20th century. But I ended up studying um, two upwardly mobile Mexican leaders associated with what I believe to be a moderate, relatively speaking, civil rights movement. And I, and I think I've done it because I wanted to, to, uh, to, to, to be fair to all the Mexicans. We have different ideas as we move forward, like African-Americans. We have differences, and sometimes the differences become divisions. But we ought not to forget that it's the heart that's leading us so to speak. That is, we share the problems with the, uh, not only with material problems like low wages, but this propensity on the part of American society to question our dignity as a yeah. people. Yeah. As you know, in our social movements, we not only argue for equal rights under the law, but we also argue for our worth. You see that statement over and over again in history. They disrespect us. They don't acknowledge and accept our worth as equals under the Constitution and under the God, eyes of God. It's the, the question of dignity is very important. So even moderate leaders, including these two individuals that I wanted to just address real briefly, Alonso Perales and Jose de la Luz Sainz, they also shared in this deeply felt concern for equal rights. And though they may have been moderates or cautious, uh, we need to understand that we all, always operate within contexts that are peculiar, that are peculiar, that are different. You know, I, I think you'd be a fool under some circumstances to propose a radical solution to problems. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes, you, like my mother used to say, when you come up against the wall, look for ways of going around it, over it and under it. You know, in other words, be astute politically, move according to the circumstances before you, always maintaining your principles, obviously, uh, the principle of equal rights, for example. Uh, regardless of gender, regardless of social background. But so let me just talk about these two individuals. And when I study them, I don't study them simply to understand who they were. I study, which is important, and the organizations that they belong to, which is important. But I, I believe that we should look to history for lessons. 
But what, what do we learn from somebody like Jose de la Luz Sainz? Jose de la Luz Sainz, one of my favorite historical figures. This fellow was born into a very poor family in South Texas. His family valued education, so they moved to a nearby town so that the children could get a better education. He became a teacher, to make a long story short. He was a teacher for well over 45 years, and he kept moving from place to place, teaching in segregated Mexican schools in the early 1900s, primarily because whenever he had arrived at a place, he would begin to talk publicly and to write about how unfair it was for Mexican children to be placed in dilapidated buildings and and that provided the opportunities that white children were getting in the schools. So he'd lose his job. So he'd have to move to another place, which in, in, in many ways, like life generally provides us opportunities to expand our, our understanding of stuff. I think that helped them get a, a broader understanding of the Mexican experience anyway. He became a founder of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Organization, the longest running civil rights organization in the country, the League of United Latin American Citizens. We call it LULAC. But how did he come to that? Well, he came to that as a serviceman in the military. He joined the service and he said, I'm joining the service because I want to start using my, a rifle instead of a pen to fight for the rights of working class children. That's his argument. He, he joins a service and begins to write him uh, uh, notes every day for 11 months. He missed only two or three days. He wrote a war diary and he published it in 1933. The only diary ever written by a Mexican-American service man in any war. And it may have been the only diary published by a Texan in World War I. And as important as it is for some diaries to note personal experiences like getting wet and getting shot at, he did much more than that in his diary. It's a masterful work that I've translated and edited, um, so it's available. And so he talks a lot as a Mexican. Uh, let me just say a couple of things about what he says in his diary. He says, you know, we... African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and Native Americans that are fighting for our constitutional rights. We are the true Americans because we're abiding by the fundamental values in these important historical documents. The segregationists are the ones that are undermining the possibilities, the grand possibilities of the Republic. They're the enemies of the nation. He also said, I am not going to wave the flag simply for the sake of waving the flag and drawing attention. I'm going to argue for what stands behind the flag. What stands behind the flag is the American Constitution, which argues for equal rights. The last thing, which he says a lot more, a lot of other things, but the one that, thing that really impressed me that carries a major lesson uh, from history for all of us. He said, we Mexican Americans, and they're getting together and talking about this. 
he, he said, we are making the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefields so that future generations of any social background in the future can argue for equal rights on the basis of our sacrifice. That's prescient, that's visionary. And we should always, I think, look beyond our station, look beyond our experience. And with this kind of critical social consciousness, think about how we can contribute for a better life for our children and grandchildren. And in, in, uh, as modeled by Christ, uh, this often means sacrifice. Of course, they were making the ultimate sacrifice, but sacrifice comes in other forms. That's one of the lessons that I draw from him. There's many others. The other historical figure that is very instructive for me is Alonso Perales, also a founder of LULAC, uh, an attorney. Um, he's an extraordinary individual who um, achieved so much, including participation in the inaugural meeting of the United Nations in, in uh, San Francisco, 1945. He participates as a member of the Nicaraguan delegation. That's the explanation of that is another story. But once he's there, he uses the case of Mexicans to argue for a charter guaranteeing people around the world the, the right to live freely, uh, absent you know, racist ideas and discriminatory behavior. And he not only argues the case of Mexicans, but he argues against what I called earlier, the edifice of race. It's just another way of saying that he recognizes that the problem of race that has brought on two major wars, at least one world war, is, is a central issue, particularly for the victims of racism, which includes not only Mexicans, but African-Americans and Native Americans and so forth. So he, he contributes to that, the writing of that charter. That, that's one of his major achievements. But for me, the lessons that his life gives us uh, are pretty clear. We need to be devoted to the idea of social justice as much as we can. This is a serious business. He, along with his wife, dedicate their lives almost entirely to the cause. They make great sacrifices, not like the sacrifices on the battlefields by Mexican-American soldiers, but he makes sacrifices with his time uh, and, and many other things. Uh, he was very astute politically, uh, which reminds me of my dad, one of the, his most important pieces of advice in Spanish, which sounds harsher, harsh, he always said, be astute, no seas pendejo, don't be stupid. When you go out in the world, figure it out, move intelligently, don't let people um, uh, misuse you, uh, be smart, be astute. And that's what I learned from Alonso Perales. Not only should we devote much into the struggle for the rights of humanity, but we ought to do it with the abilities, the God-given abilities that we all have, and all that we've learned along the way as we mature and become integrated, fully integrated individuals.
This was such an interesting discussion. Make sure you join me for part two of my conversation with Dr. Emilio Zamora. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest. If you enjoyed my podcast, please subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts too. Thank you for your continued support.